joy to be with you, singing to our gracious King. Would you please open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel according to Luke, chapter 24. That's dealing with the resurrection of Christ. And starting verse 13, we have the astonishing account of the two disciples when, they, when the Lord comes and meets with them. And remember, they cannot recognize Jesus. And the Lord opens their eyes and reminds them of the Scriptures. So in Luke chapter 24... Uh, let's go to verse 25. Verse 25. And Jesus said to them, Here is a holy rebuke. O oh, foolish ones, and is low of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Messiah, the Christ, should suffer these things and enter into His glory? And beginning with Moses, moving to all the prophets, He interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. Look at verse 32. And they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while He talked to us on the road, while He opened to us the Scriptures? Now, still going through the work of Luke, but now in Acts, Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 4, we have Peter and John being arrested because of a healing, proclaiming Christ. Starting verse 7. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that, the, that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Let us pray. Lord, we long, we are longing to hear your words speak to us. Feed us as your flock. Help me, Lord, to be faithful. Help the congregation to be faithful. Thank you for this place. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Psalm 78. Psalm 78. It's a beautiful psalm written by Azaf. 
And in this psalm, Azaf reminds God's people that we must always proclaim and declare the works of the Lord. We can never, we can never forget the works of the Lord, the deeds of Yahweh. And actually, we must be telling the next generation and the next generation. So, Azab says in Psalm 78, in verse 4, We will not hide them, and them is the story of God's work through the nation of Israel. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and His might and the wonders that He has done. The glorious deeds, the marvelous works of the Lord cannot be hidden, but actually must be what? Proclaimed, declared. That's what Azaf is saying here. And I would say that certainly the most glorious and most wonderful work of the Lord is the work of what? Salvation. Amen. There is no other work or deed more glorious than our salvation. Think about the incarnation, the suffering, the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus Christ in order to save His people. Is there any work more glorious than the work of salvation? By no means. And that's why we are called to declare, proclaim the salvation of the Lord. But we cannot stop there. There are other things that we must be declaring. The works of the Lord are culminated in the crucifixion, but the Lord has worked throughout history. He worked in the past, He's worked in the present, and He will continue working through the future. And we must keep declaring the marvelous deeds and works of the Lord. And I believe that one of the, as Azaf says here, the glorious deeds and His might, the wonders that He has done, I believe that one of these glorious deeds was what we call the Reformation time, the Reformation period in the 16th century. I believe that's a marvelous work of the Lord that must be declared, must be proclaimed, and we cannot hide, we cannot let that marvelous work, to borrow the words of J.C. Ryle, sink like a massive ship. William Cunningham, a church historian, he says, The Reformation from Popery in the 16th century was the greatest event or series of events that has occurred since the close of the canon of Scripture, since the death of the Apostles. After that, that's this church historian. Philip Schaff, another church historian, he says, the Reformation of the 16th century is, next to the introduction of Christianity, the greatest event in history. It marks the end of the Middle Ages and the beginning of modern times. Starting from religion, it gave directly or indirectly a mighty impulse to every forward movement and made Protestantism the chief propelling force in the history of modern civilization. Sadly, sadly, it's heartbreaking, but many Christians have no idea, no grasp about the Reformation. That's heartbreaking. Especially in our American culture, Christian American culture, we live in a state of amnesia, dementia. A demented person is a person who doesn't know his past. And think about an individual when he's going through dementia and how hard it is. He has no idea where he is, he has no idea who you are. Now apply that to the corporate. And that's the state of the church in America. The great majority. We have no idea. We reject history. It doesn't matter. 
As Christians about the Reformation, they have no idea what the Reformation was while they're holding a Bible in their hands. Do you know why you're holding a Bible in your hand? <laughs> so, today I want to begin by just giving some church history lesson. I think that's important for us to grasp here. And if you don't like church history, I'm sorry. But you're going to have to bear with me for a little while because we need you in order to understand the works of the Lord throughout history. So, as we think about the Reformation, we need to remember that there was the formation first. The formation of the church. So, we think about the first century with Jesus Christ as the, 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 the head of the church and He's starting with the New Covenant community. And we have the leadership with the apostles who are filled with the Holy Spirit. And you think about the beginning of the church, the first three centuries, and was marked by the centrality of the Word of God. The early church marked by the centrality of the preaching. Christ crucified. And also persecution and suffering. That was a great mark of the early church for the first three centuries. One church historian, he says, this era, the first 300 years, has been called the heroic age of the church. It was during these 300 years that Christianity encountered the bitter hostility of the Roman and Greek religions, and I would say the Jewish religion also, and systems of philosophy, and was under the ban of the civil power. It was then that it formulated its doctrines, set forth its principles, wrote its New Testament books, and endured its fiery persecution. In the enthusiasm and freshness of their faith, its converts dared all things. No tasks were too hard, no hardships too great, and no torture too painful when called for in the name of Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior. Well, we cannot paint a picture here that the church was perfect. The church has never been perfect on earth. Just read the New Testament and you're going to see that there are many flaws. That's why we have the New Testament. A lot of letters fixing problems in the church. But the church had a form and was marked by the centrality of Christ. Him crucified, the preaching, the fellowship of the saints. But things start changing. In 312, 312, Constantine, one of the emperors of Rome, he starts professing to be a Christian. 312, 313, we have the Edict of Milan. What is the edict of Milan? It's him saying that Christianity is no longer a religion that should be persecuted by the Romans. It's as if he's giving the green light to Christianity. We cannot persecute Christians anymore. But with this, we have 312, his conversion, 313, his declaration... And starting there, things start changing in most of the churches. Another church historian, he says, between 313 and 590 A.D., listen to this, the old Catholic church, that's important, the old Catholic, Catholic universal, the old Catholic church, in which each bishop or or the leader of the church had been an equal. So that church became the Roman Catholic Church. No longer the old Catholic Church, the old universal church, but now the Roman Catholic Church, in which the bishop of Rome wants primacy over, over other bishops. The practical union of the church and the state under Constantine and his successors led to the secularization of the church. The Eastern Church became a department of the state. 
The influx of pagans into the church through the mass conversion movements of the era contributed to the paganization of worship as the church tried to make these barbarians feel at home within its fold. Okay, okay. I hope you can hear these things, read these things, and just, whew, that's happening right now. Paganization of the church. Trying to make pagans feel comfortable at church. Isn't that what's happening today? Bring the masses to church and make them feel comfortable. That's what Spurgeon says, entertaining goats instead of feeding the sheep. And once you begin entertaining goats, you've got to keep entertaining them. We must remember history. So a process of deformation starts to take place. So from 313 until the 16th century, when you have the Reformation, much of Christianity had been radically deformed. Think about what's taking place when you get to the 16th century, the time of the Reformation. Christ was removed from the center of the Christian life. Now you have the worship of Mary and the worship of saints, the idolatry of relics, the necessity of indulgences, the lack of knowledge of the Bible, the necessity of works to achieve salvation, the creation of purgatory, no longer the pulpit in the center of the church, but now you have what? The table. The table. The mass. And so many other perversions took place. So much of the so-called Christianity was completely deformed, almost unrecognizable. But the form is still there. In writing about the necessity of the Reformation, Philip Schaff, he says, The papacy was secularized and changed into a selfish tyranny whose yoke became more and more unbearable. He's talking about when he reached to the 16th century. Theology was a maze of scholastic subtleties, Aristotelian dialectics, and idle speculations, but ignored the great doctrines of the gospel. Crowstad, the older friend of Luther, confessed that he had been doctor of divinity, before he had seen a complete copy of the Bible. He has a doctor of divinity, and he knows hardly anything about, anything about the Bible. Saint worship and image worship, superstitious rites and ceremonies block the direct worship of God in spirit and in truth. So that's when he reached to the 16th century, and the Lord is in His Mighty mercy, raising men and women here and there, preparing the world for the Reformation. So, as we move quickly from the formation to the deformation to the Reformation in the 16th century. And that's known as the the Protestant Reformation, right? That's how we call the Protestants. A protest. What is, the, what is a protest? Well, back in the day, a, a, an official declaration against a statement. So that, that's why they're called the Protestants, because they are declaring something to be true against a statement that's false. The Reformers were protesting. They want to go back to the centrality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they were protesting not with swords and guns, but with what? The preaching of the Word. Godly men standing behind the pulpit and pre proclaiming the truth of God. That's how the Reformation took place. Joe Beakey, he writes... The Reformation possessed at its heartbeat a devotion to the pure truth of the Holy Scriptures. 
especially manifest in the passionate exposition of the biblical doctrines of salvation by grace, true worship, and the pursuit of holiness. The Word of God preached was properly held to be the central engine for the breaking down of, of Satan's realm and the upbuilding of God's kingdom. Listen to this. The Word of God preached was properly held to be the central engine for the breaking down of Satan's realm and the upbuilding of God's kingdom. Remember Luther's theme? The Word above all earthly powers. That's what the Reformers believed. Unleash the truth and God will do the rest. Just let His Word go forth. So in the midst of those dark days, that's why it was called the Dark Ages, the light of the Gospel begins to shine bright and the joy of the Lord becomes to be manifested as people can hear the Gospel in those very, very dark days. And the Reformation, it's very important. It didn't affect only Christianity. It affected all civilization. It was a massive earthquake that affected everywhere. Everywhere. And in order to keep the purpose of the Reformation clear, to know what the battle was about, the Reformers, very wisely, they summarized the major doctrines of the Christian faith for which they were protesting. And they did that with five short but very powerful phrases. What we call the solas. So, the solas stand like signposts to keep us from swerving off the narrow road of the gospel. The word solas or sola means only, only, alone in Latin. And was crucial for protecting biblical truth from deadly compromise. Stephen Wellam, he says, The Reformation solas best illustrate the, re the recovery of the Bible's central, central truths. So, five short, but very, very powerful statements that would keep the Reformation moving forward. So, you think about what is a Reformed church. A Reformed church is a church that upholds these five solas. It's a church that embraces these five statements and lives out in the life of the church. And if we think about... Uh, we're thinking an imagery of a war, a battle raging, and we think about a building to protect this army that's moving forward... I have here how we can put the five solas together, and thanks to Joseph who helped me with that. So, first of all, it would be sola scriptura, and that would be the foundation, the foundation for all that the reformers are doing. The Bible alone, the scriptures alone. Sola scriptura. The Holy Scriptures are our supreme and only rule of faith in life. Not human tradition, not reasoning. The Word of God alone. Neither the Pope, nor the Church, nor the traditions of the Church, not even the councils of the Church, are above the Scriptures. The Scripture alone holds final authority concerning faith and nurturing the Church. Whatever, whatever other authorities that God has established in this world, whether church, state, family, or any other, they are to be subject to the Scriptures. That was the motto. Sola Scriptura. The Word of God alone is sufficient to feed the flock. The Word of God alone is sufficient to guide the church, to save sinners. Second, sola gratia, grace alone. 
God's grace alone, not human goodness, not human efforts, can save sinners. It's the grace of God. Grace stands opposed to the notions of human freedom, willpower, or merit. What is grace? But receiving what you don't deserve. It's a gift. Haris, grace. It's a gift that you have no merit in deserving it. That's grace. You don't deserve, but here it is. I'm giving to you. According to Galatians 1.5, grace calls us. Titus 3.5, grace brings regeneration. Romans 3.24, grace justifies us. Hebrews 13, grace sanctifies us. According to 1 Peter 1, grace preserves us. Sovereign grace crushes all pride. Remember Paul's words in Ephesians 2.8. For by grace you have been saved. And that's not your own doing. It's actually the gift of God. Sola gratia. Must be embraced, treasured, and proclaimed today. Amen? The other one, Solus Christus, Christ alone, Christ alone. In the center of all the solas, as a cross holding all the other solas together, stays in the middle here. Christ alone, not the saints, not the angels, not the ministry and rights of the church, not our good works, can be our mediator, redeemer and savior. 1 Timothy 2.5 For there is one God and one mediator between man and God. The man Jesus Christ. Only Jesus Christ as mediator can be our prophet to teach us, our priest to reconcile us to friendship with the Holy God, and our King to deliver us from our enemies. Christ alone is unto us, using Paul's words, Wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Solus Christus. Christ alone. The fourth pillar. Sola fide. Faith alone. Faith alone. That's probably one of the most well-known of the solas because Luther emphasized that a lot. Sola fide by faith alone. Martin Luther correctly reminded us that justification by grace through faith alone is the doctrine by which the church stands or falls. Faith alone, not our works, not faith plus our works. Faith alone is the instrument by which the sinner is justified from the guilt of all sin. What is faith? But the empty hand... They embraces Jesus. Faith is not a hand that has something good and say, Alright, Jesus, I give you this good thing here and I'll take your other good thing. Faith is an empty hand, like a beggar, now taking hold of all the riches of Christ. Faith, if you go to the Old Testament, the idea is that the, the word means to Amen. To Amen. That's faith. Amen to Jesus Christ. Yes, He's mine. That's faith. And finally, the capstone, Soli Deo Gloria. God's glory alone. Connecting God's one purpose for creating this world and humanity. As with the other soul, as it speaks of God first and rightly notes that He is the highest object of praise, worship, and devotion. Paul says in Romans 11:36, For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things, to Him be glory forever. Amen. And what's amazing is, 
this is not the creation of European men who were bored with the Roman Catholic Church. That's actually all the doctrines from the Scriptures. And I just went really quickly to Romans, and I was able to just very quickly just take a hold of all these solas. So, for example, in Romans chapter 3, verse 10, as it's written, what is that? Sola Scriptura. He's basing his doctrine of justification, not with the councils of the church, but with the Scripture. As it's written, no one is righteous, not one, no one. And then he goes on to say, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the Scriptures, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace, and you can say alone, as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus alone. And then, borrowing the words from chapter 11, to the only wise God be glory forever, through Jesus Christ, Amen. And that's very important, the solace, only, only. Do you know why? Because the Roman Catholic Church, even today, they teach that salvation is by grace, through faith, in Christ. They teach that. They don't deny that. But what is the problem? There is a Latin word called et. Et. That means end in English. That's very important because they don't deny Jesus Christ and grace and the importance of faith. But they add an end. According to the, their teaching, salvation is in Christ and through the sacraments. So we have Sola Scriptura for the Reformers, and then you move to the Roman Catholic teaching. Yes, scriptures are very important. And church tradition. And the teachings of the Pope. We declare sola gratia. Grace alone. They're going to say, yes, grace is crucial. And men's works. And men's merits. We declare Solus Christus, Christ alone. And they say, yes, Christ. Yes, amen to Christ. But not Christ alone. You've got to have Mary. You've got to have the saints to intercede, to mediate on your behalf. We declare Sola Fide, faith alone. No, 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 no. They say faith, yes, very important. And works. We declare Declare solely Deo Gloria. To God alone be the glory, because He alone accomplished the work of salvation. They say, yes, glory be to God, but not alone. How about Mary, the mother? The mother of God. How about the saints? How about the church? The Pope? They deserve the glory also. So the evangelical church in America desperately needs to rediscover, embrace, and proclaim this truth of the solace. Matthew Barrett, in one book, he writes, and I think it's very, very truth what he says. He says, In my experience, however, many in evangelical churches today have never heard of the solace. Now, it could be that they have never heard the labels, but would recognize the doctrines once told what each sola means. At least I pray so. But my suspicion is that for many churchgoers, even the content of these five solas is foreign, or worse, offensive. We live in a day when Scripture's authority is questioned, the exclusivity of Christ as mediator, as well as the necessity of saving faith, are offensive to pluralistic ears. The temptation to think that these five solas are museum pieces of bygone era, era with little relevance for today's church. 
We disagree. We need the solas just as much today as the reformers need them in the 16th century. And all these solas, just like the five points of the doctrines of grace, they're all together. You cannot remove one. They're all interconnected. All interconnected. It's not like you can pick one and not like the other ones. No, they're all connected. And in the center, I believe in the center is Solus Christus. Solus Christus stands at the center of the other four solas, connecting them in a coherent theological system through which the Reformers declare the glory of God. So, I have here Solus Christus, Christ alone as the center of the solas. It's the heart of the solas. It's Solus Christus that enables us to understand sola gratia. We understand grace because Christ has given us grace to come to Him. Solus Christus helps us understand sola fide. We are taking hold of Christ. Solus Christus helps us understand sola scriptura. He is the key for the scriptures. And ultimately, we can only declare soli Deo Gloria because of Solus Christus. No person outside Christ can glorify the Lord. Only through Christ we can give all the glory to God. So, sometimes you might ask, what was the Reformation all about? There are many aspects of the Reformation. The importance of marriage was a crucial a crucial aspect of the Reformation. The importance of the Word of God. But I would say that the center, if you ask the Reformers, what is the purpose of this Reformation? What is the goal? And they would say, Solus Christus. Christ alone. Luther said, our theology is the theology of the cross. Because that's what matters. So I want to show very quickly two very important aspects of Solus Christus. The first one is Solus Christus in interpreting the Scriptures. And I will skip the passage I had for the sake of time, and I just want to go to Luke chapter 24. I had another passage in Romans 1, but let's go to Luke chapter 24. The passage I read in the beginning. And it says, in beginning with Moses, Luke 24, 25, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That's amazing. Jesus can only be either God incarnate or a maniac, an egomaniac. To declare that all the scriptures are not about Moses, David, Abraham. It's not about you. It's about Him. It's all about me. Jesus is the key to interpret the scriptures. And it's fascinating because the, the, the Gospel of Luke begins with Jesus. His first ministry in a synagogue... And he opens the Scriptures and he says what? He opens in Isaiah and says, it's fulfilled in your hearing. And now he ends his earthly ministry opening the Scriptures and saying what? It's all about me. I think it's very similar to Acts chapter 8 when you have the Philip and the eunuch. Remember? Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. And the Ethiopian man is reading and he has no idea what Isaiah means by that. Remember, Philip shows up and says, do you understand? How can I understand if nobody explains to me? And what does Philip do? He explains in light of Christ. And he shows how Christ is the fulfillment of those scriptures. And what does the eunuch say? I need to be baptized. 
the divine plan reaches its climax in Christ's death and resurrection and will reach its final resolution with Christ's return. Christ alone brings unity to the Scriptures. Solus Christus brings coherence to the entirety of the Word of God. Think about Christ alone is the promised seed in Genesis chapter 3. Christ alone is the seed of Abraham who blessed the nations, according to the New Testament, Galatians. Christ alone can save us from the flood of God's wrath. Christ alone is the perfect and better Adam. Christ alone is the true Israel of God. Christ alone is the greater David. Christ alone fulfills the temple. Christ alone is the better land flowing with milk and honey. Christ alone is the greater Exodus. Christ alone is the perfect Passover. And all the covenants of the Old Testament, all the covenants they structured the Old Testament, find their fulfillment in whom? Solus Christus. Christ alone. Christ alone brings coherence to the Scriptures. Only Christ enables us to comprehend the Bible. And once we comprehend the Bible, we can be transformed. Stephen Whelan, he writes, Listen to this, that's very, very practical what he says. He says, despite the diversity of human authors, Scripture speaks as a unified, unified divine communicative act by which God reveals Himself and the whole history of redemption from creation to new creation. And this unified work of God has one main point. The triune God in infinite wisdom and power has chosen to bring all His purposes to fulfillment in whom? In Christ. The centrality of Christ, then, does not diminish the persons in the work of the Father and the Spirit. Scripture teaches us, rather, that the Father does centers in His Son and that the Spirit works to bear witness and bring glory to the Son. So, solus Christus, in relation to the Scriptures, you're not putting the Father against the Son and the Son against the Spirit. Remember the unity of the Trinity. They delight in having the Son alone as the fulfillment of all God's saving plans. We live in a time, in a day, that most people want to interpret the Scriptures not with the lenses of Christ, but with the lenses of what? Self. Me. Me. So you go to the Scriptures there, the only thing you want to know is about you. So many people. What does it mean to you? Go to Bible studies. What does it mean to you? What does it mean to you? This passage. Oh, to me this means that. And I understand the idea behind, but honestly, who cares what that means to you? Honestly. It's worthless. It's worthless. It's pointless what the Scripture means to you. It's what does the Scripture mean in light of the coming of Christ. Christ is the center of the Scriptures, not you. Christ. It's not the Pope. It's not the church, councils of men. Another thing that people love to use as the, the center to interpret the Scriptures, what's taking place around us. They use the news as the lenses to interpret the Scriptures. Or what's happening with Israel and the land of Palestine. And plagues. And wars. As if those things were what bring coherence to the Scriptures. As Solus Christus is brought to the church, Christ alone through all the Scriptures, as the church proclaims Christ as the center of the revelation of God, do you know what happens? Do you remember what happened to the two on the road to Emmaus? Their hearts burn. Their hearts burn with joy. Because they could see Christ in the Scriptures. And as we bring Solus Christus into interpreting the Scriptures, 
the hearts of God's people will burn with delight. Not only that, but also, here's the last one, Solus Christus, Christ alone in salvation. We live in a time that a vast number of people believe that they can live outside Jesus. They believe they can live without Jesus Christ, never being a slave of Jesus, never walking through the narrow road, never forsaking their old lifestyle, and yet the moment they die, they are declared to be where? where? In heaven. So many people, they live like the devil, and when they die, what happens? Oh, he's up there, smiling at you, looking down on you. As if suddenly you are in heaven. person who never showed any fruits of union with Christ. Why? Because we live in a pluralistic, postmodern, truth-rejecting, Christ-despising, Bible-repudiating culture. Therefore, Solus Christus stands as a confrontation to those around us. In a society permeated with the idea of tolerance. 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 We all need to be tolerant. When you come with the exclusivity of Christ and says, Hey, 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 actually, the gospel is very intolerant of other ways. There is no other way. People don't like that. Acts chapter 4. Remember, we read this earlier. Peter. Rulers of the people and elders. If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, by Him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone. Look at Sola Scriptura. They're quoting Psalm 118 as the foundation for their Christology. The stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has actually become the cornerstone. And then he says this beautiful statement, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And the picture here reminds me throughout history how many of the pre-reformers and reformers and post-reformers would stand be, before councils and call to deny the gospel. And they know what they would do? Just like Peter. Let it be known to you. I'm not denying this truth. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must, we must be saved. What is the greatest problem of man? What is the greatest need of man? For most of us, the greatest need is a Republican president. So many people believe that the greatest need that we have is a better system of education. The greatest need is better financial situation. If I make more money, I'll be better. Our greatest need is not financial, it's not physical, it's not social, it's not educational, it's not relational, it's not political. The greatest need we have is spiritual. We need to be saved from God's righteous wrath. And look at Peter's word. There is salvation. That's glorious news for people who are under the sentence of God. There is salvation. There is salvation. In whom? 
Christ and Mary? Christ and merit? Christ and penance? Christ and works? In Christ. Remember Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. His name shall be, his name shall be called what? Jesus. Jesus. Why? For He will save His people. Not Jesus and Mary. Not Jesus and the saints. Not Jesus and this. Jesus. Because He alone saves people. The Gospel is the wonderful news that God has come to save His people. And that's why the Reformation was a time of great joy. Despite all the persecution, suffering, martyrdom, there was great joy. Okay, he says, there is salvation in no one else. There is salvation in no one else. That's the heart of Solus Christus. Christ alone. No other name. There is no other name. Give me a name. Moses. Muhammad. Buddha. Confucius. No other name. Joseph Smith. No other name. No other name. I don't know if I have this code here. Yeah, he says, Derek Thomas, he says, From one point of view, of course, it sounds arrogant and insensitive to Buddhists or Muslims or Shintoists or a member of some other historical religion of the world. This must always sound insufferably exclusive and unloving. Unless... It happens to be true. In our own time, it's not the statement that Jesus saves that's offensive, but the insistence that He alone can save, thus making every other religion false and a form of idolatry. Amen? Solus Christus, Christ alone. Jesus Christ alone lived and died for me. That's why Luther was so emphatic about his Christus pro me, Christ for me. The Pope didn't live for me. Mary, a wonderful, a hero of the faith. I was telling the kids last night, I wish I had a third of her boldness and faith and courage. But she's not the Savior. Jesus alone bore the holy wrath of God for me, Solus Christus. Jesus alone is the perfect priest, prophet, and king, Solus Christus. Christ alone can make a wretched sinner into a saint and a son of God. Christ alone sent His Holy Spirit to live within me. Christ alone has given adoption to God's family. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus alone. Christ alone bought my salvation and gave me justification. Christ alone has my life in the palm of His hands. Christ alone has given me His church to be part of. Christ alone has given me His church as my new family. Christ alone has provided all the revelation that I need. If Christ alone has set you free, you are what? Free indeed. And that's what I always ask people who I face in the streets or they knock on my door. What is Joseph Smith offering me that Christ has not given me? What can the watchtower offer me and give me that Christ has not provided for me? What can Muhammad or the Pope gives me that Christ has not done perfectly on my behalf. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. We do not need any other prophet to give us new revelation. Jesus alone is God's final and perfect revelation. We do not need any other mediator. Christ alone stands perfectly between us and God. We do not need any other king to rule over the church. 
Christ alone is the perfect king. Remember Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5. The scene in heaven, John sees the scroll with the history of mankind. The scroll is closed with six seals. Do you remember what John does? He weeps loud. Why? Because there is no one, no one, who can come and sit at the right hand of God and open that scroll and bring re- final redemption to the world. Until what? We hear an angel saying, Weep no more. Weep no more. Why? Solus Christus. Christ alone has the authority to sit down and just tear apart these seals and open this scroll. So let me remind you, President Trump cannot save you, your children, your grandchildren. No president can save you. And sadly, we have been living as if all our hopes are with human leadership. No man can save you from hell. Christ alone can. No one, no one can sustain you, sustain your family. A good education, money, good job, earthly security, all these things will not save you from hell. Solus Christus, Christ alone, has the power, authority to deliver you. So I ask you, is Christ alone your righteousness? Is Christ alone your righteousness? If you die today, you have no warranty that you're not going to die today. Does anybody here have a warranty that you're not going to die today? Does anybody have a certificate saying you're not going to die today? If you die today, you will stand before God, the Holy One. You will. And when he looks at you, and Satan standing behind you, bring all the accusations, right accusations of sins you have committed against God, what will take place? Are you going to say, Lord, I was a good person? Look at my good deeds. Will God is now your garments, the fragrance of Christ, or the stinkiness of your good deeds? Solus Christus. Solus Christus. Christ alone. Yes, Satan is right to bring all these accusations. There is my righteousness. And he stands up and he says, He's mine. He's mine. One of the greatest banners of the Reformation was the Latin statement, Post tenebrox lux. After darkness, light. Great light starts to shine because the light of the world was once again brought forth into the preaching, into the lies of the people. And one of the most beautiful parts of our church congregation, when you think about light shining, was in the worship service. And one particular element of the worship service, the Lord's table. The Lord's table. For many, many years, the Lord's table was actually a declaration against Solus Christus. The church would be celebrating this Lord's Supper. Why? Because Christ was not enough. And still today, 
the Roman Catholic Church. They believe that Christ is not enough. And you need to partake of those elements to be saved. Jesus is not enough. And with the coming of the Scriptures, we remember that the Lord's Supper is actually a beautiful time in the life of the church when we remember, we remember Solus Christus, Christ alone. He alone shed His blood for His people. 